Hello, this is Dr. Ned Hallowell, and welcome to Dr. Hallowell's Wonderful World of Different. Today, we have a very special guest, uh, a person whom I've been a fan of for many, many years, and she is my favorite expert in a field that is probably the single most stigmatized, misunderstood, and yet very prevalent problem in the entire field of medicine and mental health, namely what's called addiction or substance use disorder, to use the more accurate term. Addicts, as they're called, are treated horribly in emergency rooms. They're avoided by doctors in practice. Family members shun them. It's akin to being a leper back in ancient times. And yet, what they have is, is as bona fide a disease as arthritis or congestive heart failure or diabetes, chronic conditions which carry no shame with them whatsoever. And Carrie Wilkins, Dr. Carrie Wilkins, PhD, has been spending her lifetime to bring understanding. The subtitle of her book is Beyond Addiction. The subtitle is Using Science and Kindness to treat uh, uh, addiction. And, and that's exactly what she does at her world-class center in Manhattan, the Center for Motivation and Change, and then their inpatient residential facility out in the Berkshires in Western Massachusetts. Uh, she's truly a, a luminary in the field. And, um, you know, if more people would read her books and listen to her message, this huge population would get the help they need instead of being segregated, marginalized, scorned, and often essentially put to death by the kind of misunderstanding and mistreatment they receive. Well, we want to shine a light in, into that darkness. I can't think of a better person to have on the podcast than Carrie Wilkins to, to shine that light. So welcome to the wonderful world of different, Carrie. Thank you so much. And I'm just going to give you a shout out back to say that you are absolutely one of my favorite people in the field. I recommend your book all the time. And it was the light bulb moment for me when I read your book and was like, oh, I see myself and my whole family here. <laughs> nice to know what it is. <laughs> well, that's why you have such a lively and interesting family. Well, let's, let's just jump right in. And now, you know, most of the people listening to this podcast are, are not experts. So what, what would you say, what does the average person need to know that they might not know about addiction or substance use disorders? Well, it's interesting. I actually think people know a lot and most people have some experience with caring about somebody who has a substance use problem, their own substance use struggles. <laughs> My husband teases me whenever we go to a dinner party or at least before we did pre-COVID when there were large gatherings of people, yeah. you know, I would tell what I did for a living. And like by the end of the night, I would have multiple people coming up and saying that they knew somebody or that they had struggled or so I think it's actually, everybody knows somebody. And the problem is I think people just are not comfortable talking about it because of all the, out, the reasons you outlined at the beginning of the show. I mean, there's just so much stigma and shame associated with having this problem that people really, really go underground with it, which is unfortunate because there's so many so many ways to get help now. Um, there's so many different resources available to people. So anything that we can do to just keep people feeling like I can share this information. And if I 
talk about myself or my loved one, I might actually be able to really impact change. Okay. Well, let's, let's talk about that. So let's say someone's listening and they're saying to themselves, yeah, I I've got that problem myself or a relative of mine has it, or someone I care about has it. What is the good news? What, what is, what, how much hope actually is there for this very common problem? Well, that there's lots of different options available to you. And one of the most important things is to really step back and kind of think about the behavior itself and wonder how is it making sense in some way in your life? Like, so one of the things we talk about a lot is that behaviors make sense. We don't engage in behaviors that aren't reinforcing in some way, right? And that is that, you know, whether it's brushing your teeth, going on a diet, you know, there's all sorts of things that we do because we're going to get something positive out of it. Substance use is no different, right? People use substances because they get something from those substances that they need, want, or like, or don't have in their life in some other way. So if we can actually really understand, okay, how does that behavior make sense in some way, then we can really reverse the image and say, okay, what does that person need so that they don't have to go to that substance to get those needs met? What coping skills can they learn? What needs to change in their environment? What needs to change in their relationship? What needs to change in how they take care of their body, you know, or manage their emotions, all of those things that they're getting from their substance use, we can help you get in other ways. And over time, your reliance on substances will really shift. But, you know, behavior is so complex. It's different for every single person. Like you line up 10 people with a substance use problem, their families are all different. Their life circumstances are all different. Their genetics are different. You know, how they feel emotionally, you know, their intellectual how their brains work, they're also massively different. And what, unfortunately, in this country, um, the message has been is there's there's a very narrow lane that you can get into to get better, right? The recovery lane, which is going to meetings, maybe going to rehab, you know, kind of all the traditional recommendations. You may never do those things and you can still get better. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's the most important message for people to really understand is that there's things that you can do and your family can do that really may make it so that treatment is never something you ever have to seek. So what does the person do or the relative do as a starting point? Do they read your book, which I should mention again, Beyond Addiction, uh, using science and kindness to bring about change or the Beyond Addiction workbook? Uh, They could read your book or they could do what else? Sure. And I'm not... um... (laughs) Not to plug our books, but um, our no. Books, do plug your books because they're very, very good. <laughs> Beyond addiction, how science and kindness help people change it was really about a treatment modality called Craft Community Reinforcement in Family Training that was developed by Bob Myers. Um, and we wrote the book because it's a wonderful approach for families that had been. I mean, those studies were done in the '80s, and it really wins the horse race. So when family members learn craft, or they do an intervention or they go to Al-Anon, people who do craft are like able to get their loved one into treatment at kind of 60% of the time. You know, when they go to intervention, it drops down to about 14% of the time. And when they go to Al-Anon, it's like 3% of the time, but like Al-Anon is not designed to get your loved one into treatment. Al-Anon is a self-help group to help you, the caretaker, right? To just take better care of yourself and get community support. But the problem is most family members really want their loved one to get treatment, right? Like that's their goal. They want them to get support and care. And CRAFT was a really effective set of strategies to help 
family members do that. And nobody knew about it. Nobody was talking about it. Treatment programs weren't using it. Nobody knew about it. I will say there's a lot of hope in the field right now in the, in the last like five years, for sure, even the last decade, more and more people have learned about craft. There's actually states now that are mandating that treatment providers in state-funded agencies learn craft and provide that for their clients. Recovery coaches are getting trained in craft. So the world is changing, I think, in lots of positive ways. Um, and then Beyond Addiction is specifically about craft. And then in the last five, six years, we've been training family members in craft for a decade, decades, about 20 years now. And one of the things that we realized, because craft is all about positive reinforcement, right? It's really about saying, okay, you can't just ask somebody to give something up. <laughs> you have to give them something to replace that and the time to learn that. And you have to reinforce those positive changes. You can't just punish this problem away. We've collected that evidence. Punishment is not the way to help people with substance use problems. Meanwhile, that's our jails are full of people with substance use problems. Um, right. And that's usually the first recommendation that family members get, right? They get told, let your bottom, let your loved one bottom out, distance yourself from them, use tough love, like all of these very kind of punishing messages. Evidence is in doesn't work. <laughs> and in fact, the you know, let your loved one bottom out has contributed to hundreds and hundreds of people dying from their mm -hmm. substance use problems disconnected from their families. And, you know, the thing that's interesting is the studies show that families are one of the single best predictors of people being in long-term recovery is family support and family connection. So we're giving families this very mixed message of like distance yourself. But meanwhile, we know like staying connected is the thing that will right. ultimately be helpful. Right. So we were training people in craft and we kind of realized that there- what, Can I just interrupt yeah, you sure. one second? Yeah. Just give a quick outline of what is craft. Yeah. So community reinforcement. So it really helps you understand that you need to use reinforcement, right? So how do you positively reinforce and support the changes you want to see and specifically the behaviors you want to see? So you want to reinforce and support non-using behaviors. And then you want to start to let naturally occurring consequences play a role because a lot of family members will, I, I say to people all the time, like sometimes they try to make themselves the negative consequence. Like if I get mad enough at you, maybe you'll change. If I yell at you enough, if I lecture at you enough, if I punish you enough, maybe you'll change, right? Again, tends to not work so well, but there are natural consequences that are a direct outcome of a person's <laughs> substance use, right? So if I drink too much and I don't get up in the morning, I might miss my job and my boss might get mad at me. If I'm a kid, I might miss showing up to track practice on time and the coach is going to get mad at me, right? If my parent is getting me out of bed dragging me to track practice um, and getting me there, my mother might be mad at me, right? And holding a grudge and pissed off at me for days and days, but I got to track practice, you know? So the coach isn't mad at me. I'm not really suffering any consequences. If my mom lets me sleep in and I miss track practice and I have to deal with the coach being mad at me, that might be a little bit more meaningful to me and, and help me make the connection of like, oh, when I stay up all night smoking pot, I miss stuff the next day that I actually care about. And the world gets upset with me and the world teaches me a lesson, not just my family member, you know, who's upset with me. I tell the story all the time. I worked with a woman who her husband would come home and drink and kind of fall asleep in the, his lounge chair in the middle of the living room. And, you know, she'd like go downstairs at one o'clock in the morning, pick up all the beer cans, drag him up the stairs, like get him to bed, put his, take his shoes off. He would wake up in the morning, like 
not remembering how bad it was. And she, but he would wake up to her being furious with him, like super mad at him and holding, you know, but he just, it made him think she was the problem. So part of what we did was have her just leave him in his chair, right? So a natural consequence was you passed out in your chair, you wake up in the morning with beer cans all over with food on your shirt and you walk, you wake up with your teenage kids coming down in the morning, seeing you sitting there. And he actually really cared about that. He was embarrassed. He didn't want his kids to see him that way. So he immediately started to change when she had like months and months and months of him not thinking he needed to change because it wasn't such a big deal. And she was making such a big deal out of things. So you're really trying to let naturally occurring consequences play a role in helping family members figure out what those consequences can be. And, you know, there's some consequences you can't let happen, like your loved one drinking and driving or, you know, putting themselves in harm way in some way. So you really help them strategically think that through. There's a whole so component it's a com- of combination of reinforcing the desired yes. behavior and then letting natural consequences yeah. try to begin to re- extinguish the, the negative yeah. behavior. Yeah. And then there's a whole component around self-care, you know, really helping the family member take better care of themselves. And, you know, cause they're kind of been a perpetual fire drill, right? They just never know when the rest, next crisis is happening. And they're often just really not taking care of themselves, which makes them more reactive, causes other parts of their life to fall apart. So we really try to help them with self-care. And then there's a whole part of positive communication, like learning how to communicate in a way that lowers defensiveness, you know, because usually when there's a substance use problem in a house, right, there's lots of conflict um, and there's lots of arguing and fighting and again, lecturing and things like that. So really helping family members learn how to communicate so that they can listen, they can ask questions, they can make suggestions, all of that in a way that is effective and their loved one actually responds to. Um, So those some basics about how to do that. Well, give me something that you've wanted to change in your life. Me personally. Yeah. Well, I've, I've started to lose weight and and I've been doing that by going on this diet called Noom and they they use a lot of what you're talking about. But I so I yeah. guess uh, I, I guess I've wanted to change, uh, you know, my eating behavior. OK, so if you told me that or if I thought, wow, Ned really needs to lose weight and I came at you with. Ned, you need to lose weight or you're going to die and you need to do it now. And you need to do it like with this particular diet that I'm, you know, like, so if I came at you hard with a bunch of suggestions, like, which is what family members typically do, right? They're anxious and they're upset. So they come hard with all sorts of (laughs) stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Which usually causes the person with the problem to be like, "Ah, it's actually not that big of a deal or you don't understand or it's not that bad, you know, so they counter it. Right. So what you're teaching family members is to approach their loved one with curiosity questions, a lot of motivational interviewing strategies, actually, um, Mm -hmm. you know, just helping them be curious about Ned, what's what's meaningful for you about potentially losing weight? Like, how would that help you in your life? How, Mm -hmm. How would you imagine your life being better? if you did X, Y, and Z, right? Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. there's lots of little communication Mm -hmm. tricks. So what we did with craft is kind of realize that people were interested in it. They liked it, but a lot of them really struggled with picking it up as a way to approach a loved one um, because they're so full of the stigmatized understanding of addiction problems um, Mm -hmm. because of kind of just what our culture has said about it over these years. So we um, we added several components to craft um, and have kind of divided it up into um, what we call helping with understanding. 
So again, going back to that idea that behaviors make sense. And if you can actually really kind of step back and understand, okay, what does my loved one get out of their substance use, right? Are they drinking because they're anxious? They don't sleep. They're in pain. You know, maybe smoking pot helps them with the pain. You know, I mean, there's the whole host of mm-hmm. things um, mm-hmm. so that you can then start to think, okay, what are some other replacement behaviors I might be able to support? Understanding the concept that one size doesn't fit all, you know, like maybe your loved one needs to go to rehab. Maybe they don't, <laughs> you know, maybe they should go to meetings. Maybe they never will. Maybe they need to work with somebody and get their ADHD treated. You know, maybe they need executive functioning help. Maybe they need to join a community group. Maybe they need to talk to their rabbi, Um, you know, just really helping family members realize like there's a whole bunch of things that people can do to get better. Mm -hmm. Really understanding that ambivalence is normal, you know, like Mm -hmm. change is really hard. I say to people all the time, like sobriety is a learned behavior. You learn it over time. It's not just a decision you make, right? You don't just decide to be sober. You Mm -hmm. learn how to be sober. And in that learning process, there's lots and lots of fits and starts, you know, like, setbacks, things you didn't anticipate. Um, and you're also trying to learn new behaviors, which is also a complicated process, right? And those new behaviors probably don't work in the same way or as quickly as your substance use, you know? So if I drink because I'm anxious, meditating might be really helpful to me, you know, like learning breathing exercises might be really helpful to me. That's not going to work as quickly as having a glass of wine, right? Right. When I'm anxious. Um, so I'm having to resist something that I know works well and fast And I'm having to learn these other things that might not work so great for a while. So really helping family members think about it as a learning process, just again, to just help them understand and have more compassion. That has really helped. I'm kind of fascinated every single time I do an evaluation with a family member, when I go through those three additional components of what we've added to craft, um, you just see light bulbs start to go off in their head. They're like, oh, oh, name those those three components again. (laughs) So behaviors make sense. One size doesn't fit all and ambivalence is normal, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, because how you respond to ambivalence matters a lot. If I attack you every single time you get ambivalent and tell you, Ned, you're not really serious about your diet, right? Mm-hmm. I saw you eat that cookie. You must not be really serious. I can't believe you lied to me last week when you said you were on a diet, right? Yeah, yeah. If I approach you that way, you're, again, you're going to go underground. Yeah. And you're not going to want to tell me what you're right, doing. Right. If I approach you with curiosity or if I find some other way like, to support like what made you eat that cookie or, yeah, or, or how you feeling today, Ned, I just noticed yeah, like your, yeah. your, your goal seems to have shifted, you know, is there something I can do that would be helpful? You know I mean? There's mm-hmm, just, mm-hmm, it just mm-hmm. shifts how you approach your loved one um, in a pretty profound way. And then we added a lot of self-compassion to the mix, both for the family member. Um, and hopefully that will trickle down to the person with the problem because change is actually really hard and it's incredibly stressful, um, Mm. you know, when you're doing it. And so having family members really have some compassion for themselves because we're also trying to help them change their own behaviors, right? We're, we're trying to help them change how they respond when they're angry, you know, when they're anxious, how they communicate, how they take care of themselves. So, really seeing that they've got behaviors to change as well. And that everybody, in order for a family to change and get better, everybody in the system has to make some changes, right? Right. That that learning process can be hard. You and I have talked in the past, and and we both share the opinion that these folks, people who struggle with addiction, almost invariably have one or more definite talents, uh, exceptional talents. (laughs) How much of a role does identifying those talents and fanning the flames of hope around 
making those talents carry the day. How much of a role does that play in, in the process? Enormous, enormous, both for the person. So when we're working with somebody with a problem, I'm always looking for like, where's the joy in your life? You know, what do you enjoy? What are you? And and most, by the time somebody kind of seeks treatment, their kind of connection to those things has deteriorated because the substance use has taken up so much space, you know, so it's really having to sometimes go back to things that you used to care about or be connected to and plug into those things or being creative and finding new things, you know, and just, you know, finding your kind of strengths that you bring to the table, you know, are you a really social person? Are you somebody who likes a lot of novelty and you actually need mm -hmm. to go try lots of different things, you know, mm -hmm. to figure out what's going to bring you some satisfaction and joy in your life? What if their response is like, say you, you say to them, you know, in fact, you're a very talented writer or you're really a, a remarkable artist or you've got an incredible gift of sales. What if they say, yeah, but I blew it. It's too late for me. I've burned those bridges. Right. So that's where the self-compassion piece comes in. It's really being able to gently hold like, yeah, things you may have lost some things, you know, there may be some harm, some damage to your relationships, to your quality of life, to the things that you used to care about. And you can absolutely repair those or build new things. And can you kind of hold yourself gently and monitor that harsh internal critic that is probably causing you to want to give up and just go back to numbing out and blocking out these painful feelings. We need to figure out how to approach those painful feelings and tend to them. Essentially, you can't mm -hmm. just eliminate them. You need to tend to them um, right. and cultivate hope over time. I often say to people, I don't expect you to feel hopeful right out of the gates, especially if you're somebody who's really pretty beat up by your substance use. I'll, right. I'll hold that hope for you because right. I've seen so many people get better and so many families get better. So I've got more hope than uh, yeah, I, 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 I often say to my patients, uh, I'll, I'll I'll do the hoping for you at the yes. beginning, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and uh, because I've I've seen it pay off. Another question: Where what role does medication assisted treatment play? For some people, a significant role. I mean, there's some people who you know wouldn't be alive if they weren't open to medication assisted treatments. And I think you know they've definitely gotten more sophisticated over the last. 10, 15 years. So we've got a lot more options, um, especially with the opioid epidemic. You know, I mean, I think like people's openness to realizing like some people really do need to take medications in order to be safe and be able to put their lives back together. You know, at the start of the opioid epidemic, I mean, it's one of the reasons why we opened CMC Berkshires because we were really supportive of people being on Vivitrol, people being on buprenorphine, you know, whatever they needed to do to get better over time. Right. And there wasn't a rehab in the country that would put people on buprenorphine or put people on Vivitrol before they discharge. Like nobody was dealing with it. We were like, wow. Oh, we have to, wow. <laughs> we have to have an option. So that was one of our main reasons for opening was to be able to say like, we will, we will keep you on buprenorphine. If that, if you come in on buprenorphine and that is the thing that is going to be helpful to you. So we for people, you for people who don't know what that is, can you explain what it does? Yeah. So people with opioid problems, you know, there's, you kind of have antagonist or agonist, right? You can either block those receptors with Vivitrol or naltrexone, you know, so if somebody uses an opiate and that medication is on those opiate receptors, it essentially blocks it, you know, so the person doesn't, doesn't get high. They don't feel the effects of it. So it kind of makes using no fun, right? So that it's not reinforcing other people for people 
who struggle more with cravings, you know, have a more intense using history, you know, a lot of there's, and I think this is what people underestimated of the number of people that I've worked with who were desperate to be sober, desperate to be off opiates would successfully get off opiates for a big chunk of time for months and months and months. And they were thinking about using all the time. The craving states just never diminished. Um, and so for those people like being on something like buprenorphine, which actually sits in that receptor. So the receptor is filled, you know, so the craving states go down, but you don't need more and more and more, right? Like once you're kind of on your dose, you're on your dose. And then over time, as your life gets fuller, you get more stable, all the other issues maybe get treated. You'll see people kind of go down in their doses and eventually go off. And then we've had some clients who are just like, I'm just going to stay on this medication because it's keeping me alive. I don't feel safe without it. And they're kind of taking it like somebody would take insulin for diabetes, you know, I mean, so, it's, um, so their main application is for opiates. What about alcohol and marijuana? What, uh, is there any role for medication assisted? Treatment? Yeah. So, um, alcohol has a couple interesting naltrexone is another, so that also works for people with alcohol problems, kind of in a slightly quirky way. It, it doesn't work for a lot of people, but for the people that it works, works for, it seems to work really well for, they seem to drink less when they do drink and they don't seem to be as preoccupied by it. So they're um, kind of the craving states are less. Um, wow, so you, you just take it every day. Yeah. In Europe and some psychiatrists use it here in the States. There's kind of uh, a protocol for kind of, if you're trying to moderate your alcohol use, taking it on a night when you go out to drink um, mm -hmm. and lowering that night. But, but most of the clients that I've worked with just stay on it every day because it just mm -hmm. helps them with overall craving states. Mm -hmm. um, so that might be a really good option um, for people. There's uh, antabuse, which um, is the medication that if you're on it and you drink, it makes you sick, essentially yeah. gives you like a bad case of the flu. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but again, like and it can sound like a scary drug. And if you look at it online, it, yeah. you get all sorts of scary messages. It's yeah. unbelievably helpful to people. The number, and a lot of people with ADHD, by the way, you know, I've got a lot of people who are super motivated in the morning. They know they don't want to drink, right? If they take that antabuse in the morning, the decision is done. If they don't have antabuse on board, what happens over the course of the day is that motivation erodes with the stress of the day, decision fatigue, like all day long, I'm deciding not to drink. You max me out at the end of the day, especially somebody with ADD, you know, where they're like literally done, like yeah. their attention shot. They yeah. can't make good decisions at the end yeah. of the day. Um, yeah. And they'll impulsively end up having a drink where if antabuse is on the on board in the morning, they won't. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that can be really relieving. How about cannabis? So cannabis, you know, is, I don't, there's no kind of clear medication. I mean, you probably know more about how to treat all the different options. I mean, I think you kind of got to figure out like what, again, what function the cannabis is serving for mm -hmm. a person, you know, mm -hmm. are they, are they man managing their ADHD mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with it? You know, so maybe stimulants or something would be helpful. Are they managing anxiety, you know, with it, maybe mm -hmm. something in the class of medications would help with that. Um, mm -hmm. So that's a little and how about the behavioral addictions, gambling, sex, spending, shopping? That little mystery drug, naltrexone, is one that shows up in a lot of the wow. trials of really? those. Wow. Yeah. Um, wow. Oddly, like shoplifting um, and wow. things like that. Like wow. They've had trials at uh, naltrexone response. It seems to do something to the reward centers of the brain where it's just those behaviors are like less less activating. You just want to go to them a little bit less. Um, so, so it's worth a try because it doesn't yeah. do any harm. Yeah. No, and it's not a medication with a ton of side effects, um, yeah. you know, and you don't need to take it for a month to get the yeah. benefits like yeah. you can. It's worth a try. 
so the the picture is so much brighter than it was when I when I was in medical school. It was basically twelve step programs, willpower, and the success rate. If you define success as sober after a year, is about fifteen percent. So it was right. it was pretty dismal. But now you're talking sixty percent, seventy percent success rate. Well, I mean, again. I'm I'm always suspicious when people are talking about yeah, success, yeah, success yeah, rates, yeah, yeah, especially yeah. with addiction treatment, because it's such a behavioral like. But but you know, but, so, but without fussing over, it, it's a lot more helpful now than it was. Hundred percent. Yeah. Hundred percent. Yeah. And yeah. you've got lots more options. Like there's cognitive behavioral treatments, dialectical behavioral treatments. You know, there's all sorts of things that like really go at the underlying reasons why mm-hmm. people use substances. Um, mm-hmm. You know, which is what was part of the problem with old addiction treatment, right? They would get the substances out of your life. Right. But then it, the programs weren't deep enough to then really be like, okay. And it turns out you have horrible OCD under that. What do right. we do with that? You know, or you're married, like you've got or you, or you just, PTSD or trauma or, or you just hate yourself, you know, you, you right. yeah, you're, you're full of self-hatred and regret. Right. right. Yeah, yeah. So um, we're now kind of going at those underlying issues in a more clear way. And I think people are really benefiting from that. Okay, so I can imagine a number of listeners right now saying, boy, I know someone or I know myself could really use your help, Dr. Wilkins. So what? Well, I know you can't see everyone who's listening. So what, 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 do, what do they do? Well, so looking for providers in your... So one thing to be on the lookout for is looking for providers who um, take a motivational stance, right? So people providers who are trained in motivational interviewing, um, because they're really focused on understanding you. Like they're really focused on not bringing agenda to the table. Like I don't have an agenda with somebody who walks in the door. I'm, I'm curious about like what they want and what we need to do to build a pathway that they can achieve their goals. My job is not to not like put my path or my ideas about what recovery should look like onto them. Um, So, you know, providers who are trained in motivational interviewing can be really helpful. Providers who are trained in cognitive behavioral treatments can be really helpful. You know, so you can do Google searches, evidence-based treatment modalities. There's 12-step facilitation. You know, I mean, there's, you know, when they did studies, like 12-step is incredibly helpful to people. It's not like, I don't villainize that at all. The problem, the problem was that used to be all that was all there was, exactly. you know, so now it's like, here's your menu of options. Um, Let's start experimenting and let's start seeing what works for you. You know, the mindfulness strategies are incredibly helpful for people. Cause if you think about, you know, so much of substance use is kind of an impulse control problem, right? Like you have the impulse to use and you have a hard time resisting that impulse. Um, Mindfulness can really help you slow down. Right. Like, check in. Is this, is this behavior I'm about ready to engage in consistent with my values? Is it something I actually want to do? Is there something else I can do instead? If you can't slow that process down, you're going to have a hard time. So those are some of the. And another good place to start would be your two books, right? Uh, Beyond Addiction and then the Beyond Addiction workbook. Yeah. And obviously the workbook has steps you follow (laughs) called a workbook. Yeah. So the workbook is for family members or friends who've got somebody that they're concerned about. And yeah, it really goes through the helping with understanding, you know, really helping you understand your loved one or the person you care about through a different Mm -hmm. lens. There's the helping with self-awareness, really like understanding your part in it, you know, like what are your stress levels like, you know, how are you, you know, what are your values? Like, what do you care about? You know, because that's one of the things, like when parents get this message of like, Detach from your kid. I've never met a parent who wants to do that, right? They and get it's that message. It's such bad like, advice. It's such like, bad what? advice. 
right? No, so, it, it you know, really if is, you're... Yeah. If your value as a parent is, I actually want to be connected and yes. care for my kid. Yes. Let's help you like know that that's your value and figure yeah. out things that like work for you. And, you know, but it's not about sacrificing yourself for your kid, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like that, yeah. Or sacrificing yeah. your marriage for your kid. That doesn't work. You know, so we really want to help you understand yourself better and what you bring to the table. And then the other section is what we call helping with action. So that's helping with behaviors, you know, so what do you want to reinforce letting those naturally current consequences play a role and then helping with words really like using your communication to. And any um, tips on dealing with people who just deny the problem completely, who are aggressively, I don't have a problem, get away from me. Yeah. All of those strategies I just outlined might really help you with that person, you know, because if your tendency is to just keep going at that person, (laughs) you know, with all the reasons why they need to change, um, it's probably really not working, you know, but if you step back, I mean, I just did an evaluation with a lovely woman the other day who was worried about her fiance. When I talked about like behaviors make sense, I said, so what do you think he gets out of it? She was initially like upset that I was asking that question and thought that I was kind of justifying his behavior. I was like, no, no, no. Well, like literally let yourself think about what he gets from it. And what she came to was realizing like, and he's like, he was a big, you know, kind of banker guy. He was very gregarious, you know, like kind of presented himself as a big social guy. And what she realized is every single time he wasn't drinking, he was actually really shy Mm -hmm. and that he was actually a really shy introverted guy. And that Mm -hmm. alcohol was helping him be this whole different Mm -hmm. person in his Mm -hmm. work life. And that to take that away from him was actually like really complicated. Um, And that there was a lot for him to figure out. So she was able to kind of go to him and say, Hey, like, I kind of realized that maybe not drinking is really stressful for you. Yeah. And he just softened and started to talk to her about yeah. all the ways that that was really stressful for him. It yeah. allowed them to have a conversation, which she then learned a lot more about him, you know, and it's not about instantly doing something about that, mm-hmm. but it's just like really getting to know the other person um, and giving them permission to talk about it. Cause most people who are like in denial, like, again, I've never really met anybody who's like fully in denial either. Right. Like they know. They, they know exactly. They know. Yeah. And they're yeah. like yeah. pained by it and struggle, yeah. but they don't know how to change. They're right. overwhelmed with the idea of changing. Right. And they so. think they'll have to give up something. They just aren't ready to give up. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. And if you, again, really go back to that ambivalence is totally normal and really understand what that ambivalence is about. You can mm-hmm. have so much compassion for their change process and bring so much more to the table mm-hmm. when you do that. Mm-hmm. Well, Carrie Wilkins, you are an angel in the world. Uh, you're in your work at the Center for Motivation and Change, your books, Beyond Addiction and the Beyond Addiction Workbook. You're bringing hope, help, and, and, and real practical steps for change to an area where there's been such a, a dismal results for, for so very long. It's It's so wonderful to hear your message to know that it's rooted in science, but also in kindness, empathy, understanding, and that these folks that the world often seems to have given up on, they've got a lot to offer. And and once they get past their problem, you know, they can just flourish and and take off. uh, It's just wonderful to have you. If someone wants to reach you, what's the website for So uh, the clinical side of things is motivation and change, all one word, all spelled out. Um, The we have we started a nonprofit about three years ago, which is specifically designed to bring resources to families because we really want to reach communities and people that are never going to be able to you know 
see us in our New York City office or up here in the Berkshires. Um, it's really our dissemination tool out into the world. So that is cmcffc.org. And that is going to have a lot of free information. We're about ready to put a workbook up online where you're going to be able to download all of this, the invitation to change. You'll be able to download worksheets and be able to do it in the privacy of your own home. There's a lot of inspirational videos up there and there's going to be more and more resources on that website. So that's say, the one. Say more about the invitation to change. So the invitation to change is that whole list of things that I kind of outlined the helping with understanding, helping with awareness and helping with action. Um, mm-hmm. So that's the invitation to change protocol. Um, and there's like, we have a workbook with each one of those sections and different exercises. So you can go there probably in the next two weeks and be able to download the workbook. And then and it, we, the book is coming out from New Harbinger in July. So. Oh, wonderful. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. And, and it's uh, so in keeping with your approach that you phrase it as an invitation to change, not yes. a, not a directive to change. Not a mandate. Uh, right. Uh, or <laughs> yeah. or even a recipe, but a, yeah. an invitation. Would you like to accept my invitation yes. to change? Yes. You know, that's yes. a, well, I'll accept your invitation anytime, yeah, Gary well, Wilkins. You're, you're remarkable. And and, and people know how to reach you now and get your books and get help. Don't give up. Get no. the help that's out there because it's real help now. It's hope uh, buttressed with, with science. Yeah. Well, if you want to comment on today's show or if you have ideas for new shows, please email us at different at hallowellcenter.org. That's the word different at hallowellcenter.org. Please tell us what you thought of this program and ideas for new programs. It's been a real honor having you with us, Dr. Carrie Wilkins, and uh, your work is just so tremendously important. Can't thank you enough. Thank you. It's been a real joy. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.